Well, good afternoon again, everybody. Really is great to see. I know we're, you know, it's a little different than what we're used to. We're a little more spread out, a little bit smaller crowds, but it really is a joy to be able to just be here and worship with you guys. I mean, to, to hear you worshiping and just to be a part of that. So thanks so much for being with us today. And now, before we get into today's message, we're starting a new sermon series today in the book of Revelation. But before we go there, I want you to do me a favor, and I want you to just take your mind back to this time last year. So go, go back about a year, July of 2019, and if you're a student or if you're an educator, I want you to think about what were your goals for the 1920 school year? What were the things you were hoping to accomplish? Think about the hopes that you had for the next 12 months this time a year ago. What in your mind were you picturing the next 12 months would look like? And then whatever that was, 2020 came along and probably squashed it, right? Because I don't think any of us pictured that the end of 2019 and 2020 would look like it has looked. In fact, as I was preparing for this sermon, I started thinking about some of the memes that I had seen on social media about just how chaotic 2020 really has been. So for you Office fans, here's one. Here's my plans for 2020, and then here's what really happened, right? So we can relate to that. Or our favorite pitch man. So 2020, every second. But wait, there's more. I know that's how I felt. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse or couldn't get any more chaotic, then something else comes along. And then we'll go retro here with the last one, you Princess Bride fans. It's like, so let's see, where were we? Oh, yeah, in the pit of despair. <laughs> Sometimes 2020 has kind of felt like the pit of despair, right? I mean, the reality is to say that 2020 has been a strange year would be a gross understatement. We're experiencing things, at least for our generation, that are unprecedented, that we've never experienced before. But yet, if we look back at human history, we'd have to say we've kind of been down this road before. In fact, Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. And a lot of people are wondering, as they've wondered in the past, are we in the final days of human history? Is Jesus coming back in the near future? I mean, you don't have to look very far on social media or on television to find someone who is proclaiming that we're in the last days. And maybe you've been even wondering that yourself. And maybe as you saw that we're going to spend time in the book of Revelation, you're hoping that we're going to give you a timetable of the last days. Maybe that's what you hope to get out of this. Well, as I mentioned, we've been down this road before, and people have been trying to connect the dots of Revelation to current events for years. And the reality is, most of the time, we get it wrong. All the way back in 1976, Charles Taylor published his guess of when Jesus would come again. By 1994, he revised that estimate 12 times. (laughs) In the late 1970s, Pat Robertson on a broadcast of the 700 Club said that Jesus would come again in 1982. That obviously didn't happen. Jack Van Imp predicted that in 2001, we would see chaos unlike the world has ever seen in its history. Maybe he was 19 years off on that prediction. Then in 1999, Jerry Falwell told a large conference gathering that he believed the second coming would happen in the next 10 years. And again, obviously that didn't happen, and we could go on and on and on with all of these failed predictions. All of these failed predictions were based, at least in part, on the book of Revelation. So I think as we get into this series, maybe it's going to be helpful for us to realize that this book isn't just intended to give us a timeline for the end times. 
Now, that's certainly part of the purpose of the book. We're going to see that as we go through the uh, series. But its value to our lives is much greater than that. It's much more relevant to us right here and right now than that is. And so I want to explain to you guys how we're going to approach this book and then give you an overview that I think will help you discover its worth and help you discover how relevant it is to us right now. And the main theme that we're going to talk about, guys, is that the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. The book of Revelation is all about Jesus. Just like Jesus is woven through all of Scripture, and he is the central character of all of the Bible, he is the central character of the book of Revelation. It's all about him. See, I think if you asked 100 Christians, what is the book of Revelation about, the majority would say it's about the end times. It's about Jesus' second coming. And certainly Revelation gives us some very specific information, a lot of information about the end times, but it doesn't even specifically talk about Jesus' second coming until chapter 19. So there's obviously more to the book of Revelation than just that. So my hope and my prayer is that by the time we finish this series, if anyone asks you what is the book of Revelation all about, you'll say with confidence, it's all about Jesus, just like the rest of Scripture is. So we're going to go ahead and jump in. If you have your Bibles with you, if you have your Bible app on your phone, we're going to go to the very beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. Here, I'll just let you run it again because that just jumped like seven slides. So it's all yours. Thanks. Okay, so Revelation 1, 1 and 2. It says, This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything that he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So in the very first sentence of the very first verse, we see the overarching theme of the book of Revelation. That is a revelation from Jesus Christ. Some translations say it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the original word that's translated as revelation here is the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get our word apocalypse. And for most of us, when we hear the word apocalypse, our mind automatically goes to end times, but that's really not what the word means. The word simply means a revealing or an unveiling. And the word picture that it describes is if you were to take a curtain and pull it away so that you can get a closer look at something. So the book is all about revealing Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ in the sense that it belongs to him. He is the one doing the revealing. But it's also a revelation of Jesus Christ in the sense that he is the object that's being revealed. He is the person that is being revealed in the book of Revelation. So again, in the very first sentence of the very first verse, we're given the most important truth about the book of Revelation, it's all about Jesus. Because the book isn't going to go on to tell us some crazy stuff. It's going to show us the Antichrist. It's going to talk about God's judgment. It's going to talk about calamity on earth. It shows us mystery Babylon in vivid detail. But if we miss Jesus in the book of Revelation, we miss the whole book. And how our world needs a revelation of Jesus. How our world needs an unveiling of his majesty and his goodness. We look around us, we see that we desperately need a revelation of Jesus. 
You know, I so appreciate the following quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, The great fault of many professors, and he means professors of Christ, the great fault of many professors is that Christ is to them a character upon paper. Certainly more than a myth, but yet a person of the dim past. A historical personage who lived many years ago and did most admirable deeds by the which we are saved, but who is far from being a living, present, bright reality. Does that describe us? Is Jesus a living, present, bright reality in your life? Or is he just a figure of the dim past? My hope is that as we go through this series, we'll all receive a fresh revelation, a fresh unveiling of Jesus' power and his majesty and his glory and his authority in our life. And we're not going to dig into every chapter as we go through the series, but I'll just tell you right now, my hope, my challenge to you is that all of us would read through the entire book of Revelation at least twice as we go through the series. So I'm going to say that again at the end of the sermon, spoiler alert, that's going to be my take home for you guys, that you would take home and read the book for yourself. We're not going to try to interpret the details of every symbol in the book. We're not going to suggest a timeline for future events. But what we're going to do is look at the segments of the book that most clearly reveal Jesus. And then as always, we're going to encourage you to take and dig deeper with your small group, with your mentor, with your family, and have some of those other conversations as we go through the series. In verse 4 of chapter 1, as we continue on, we see that the book was originally written as a letter to seven ancient churches. And its purpose was to show them events that must soon take place. That's what we just read in verse 1. So it's not just about what will happen in the distant future, although that's part of it. But for the original audience, it's also about what was coming soon. And so I think this is a good time for us to just stop for a second and talk about the four different lenses or four different views that people have used over the years to try and understand the book of Revelation. So the first lens would be what we call the first century lens, or what scholars call a a preterist view. And in that view, they would say that there are elements of the book that only make sense to John's original audience, to the first century church. And this approach believes that Revelation only dealt with the church in John's day, that it's not predictive at all, but that he took information from his current day and and put it in symbols so that people outside the Christian family wouldn't recognize his criticism of the Roman government. So that's one view of the book of Revelation. The second lens is the universal lens or the historicist view. And in that view, the the approach believes that Revelation is sort of kind of this sweeping, disordered panorama of all of church history. And so they would say that it is predictive, but not necessarily predictive about the end times, but predictive about the the, church, the age of the church. And so in the historicist view, Revelation is full of symbols that describe what the first century Christians were going through, but also what we're going through right now. Then the third lens is the poetic view. And so from this viewpoint, it believes that Revelation is a book full of pictures and symbols intended to encourage and comfort Christians, both in John's day and today. So in the poetic view, the book of Revelation isn't literal or historic, but it's more a book of personal meaning and personal application. 
Then the last lens, the fourth lens, is the futurist view. And this approach believes that beginning with chapter 4 specifically, the book of Revelation is about the second coming. It's about end times, the period of time that proceeds just before Jesus comes again. So in the futurist view, Revelation is a book that mainly describes the end times. So the question obviously is, well, which one is right? Which one's accurate? Well, each one is true in some regard. There are parts of the book of Revelation that did speak to the current situation of the first century church. It does speak to church history. It certainly has meaning for our personal life. And there's no way you can deny that it speaks about things which are yet to come. It says it right in the text, that it's prophetic. In other words, there are things that were still in the future for John, and there are things that are still in the future for us that haven't happened yet. And if that frustrates you that there are multiple lenses, I would just remind you that Revelation isn't the only book that you need multiple lenses to fully understand. If you look throughout the Old Testament prophecy, some of those prophecies were partially fulfilled when Israel returned from exile in Babylon, but they won't be completely fulfilled until Christ's second coming. So Revelation isn't the only book that we need multiple lenses to fully understand. But the main thing we need to remember is when we read Revelation, we need to know it is first and foremost about Jesus. Because when we see that, it's easier to see the relevance for our own times and our own lives. And that brings us to our first point of the message, that the book of Revelation is meant for faith and obedience, not for speculation. The book of Revelation is meant for faith and obedience, not speculation. See, most of us, when we read the book of, of Revelation, we read it like it's the National Enquirer, you know. Inquiring minds want to know. You know, when is the rapture going to happen? Who is the Antichrist? What's going to happen to the United States of America in the end times? What do all these cryptic symbols mean? But the primary point of reading Revelation is not to speculate about world events. The text itself is very clear in verse 3 about how we should respond. So Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 says the following, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. So verse 3 states that this book is a prophecy. Again, it says it right in the text. So meaning at least part of the text is concerned with events in the future. But again, guys, the main role of prophecy throughout Scripture was to call God's people to remain faithful to Him, to encourage them to be true even when times were difficult, even when times got tough. And so God wants to show the early Christians and us the bigger picture so that we will remain faithful. That was true for the first century and is true for us now. But then this is interesting. The book of Revelation comes with a promise to those of us who don't avoid it. It says, God blesses the one who reads the prophecy, uh, who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. That's singular. Then it says, He blesses all who listen to its message and obey. That's plural. Now, this came from early church tradition of a, a church leader reading scripture aloud in public and then teaching on it. So if we were to say it in our terms of thinking or the way that we would talk, it would sound like something like the following, blessed is the pastor who teaches on Revelation and blessed is the congregation who receives it. So I think if that's the case, we should change this from like a six-week series to a six-month series. I mean, let's just get all the blessing we can up in here, right? That's what I think we should do. 
But I believe a big part of the blessing we receive is that our faith is strengthened because when you read Revelation, you come face to face with just how amazing Jesus is. With just how awesome He really is in all of His glory. And so I want to encourage you guys to spend 10 minutes a day in the book of Revelation as we go through this series. If you do that, if you're reading Revelation 10 minutes a day, you can finish the book in about a week. So you can get through it multiple times. But I think you'll come to a greater understanding of just how amazing Jesus is if you do that. Now there was a third part to that promise though, right? There was the reading and the listening, but there was also obey. I mean, reading and listening are a great start, but it doesn't end there. The book of Revelation should change the way we live. It should change the way we think. And we see that important part emphasized again at the end of the book. So we see that, we said emphasized in chapter 1. And if we go all the way to chapter 22, verse 7, we see it again. Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. So guys, anytime you see something stated in the very first chapter of a book of the Bible, and you see it stated again in the closing chapter, it's probably pretty important. You probably want to pay attention to that. We should be obeying what is written in the book. It should change how we live our lives. So there's so much more application for this than just wondering about the end times. So I want to get back on this central theme of it's all about Jesus, and I want to drill down on that a little bit more. And one of the things that we see in the book of Revelation is that the book of Revelation presents Jesus as you've never seen him before. The book of Revelation presents Jesus as you've never seen him before. Remember, this whole idea of Revelation is pulling back the curtain. We're getting a bigger, expanded view of who Jesus really is. Jesus and all the glory that he had before his incarnation. Jesus and all the glory and majesty that he shared with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit since before the beginning of time. If we go to Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we'll continue on in the chapter. It says, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. So again, this letter was written to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, which today would be modern-day Turkey. Down in verse 11, those churches are named, and we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. Most Bible commentators and, and many Bible scholars also believe that this number seven, because in the Bible the number seven refers to fullness and completeness, that this includes the churches of Christ to the end of the world, that this is actually a letter to all of the churches. And then John opens his letter by weaving in the truth of the Trinity, He starts with God the Father who is timeless and eternal. Now God the Son and God the Spirit are timeless and eternal as well. But if we look at the original Greek that John was using, you can tell he's trying to communicate this Old Testament idea of Yahweh. So he's talking about God the Father first. Then he adds the Holy Spirit where he says, from the sevenfold Spirit before His throne. Now this idea of the sevenfold spirit comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. I'll read this to you. It says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, 
the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So it isn't that there are seven different spirits. There's one spirit of the Lord, but he has all of these characteristics. And again, when you think of this idea of completeness and fullness that is tied to the number seven in Scripture, it means that he has these qualities perfectly and completely and fully. Then John ends with Jesus, the faithful witness that can be trusted. He says that he is the first to rise from the dead, implying that others will be raised as well. He also mentions that he's the ruler of all the kings of the world, just to remind you who is in control. And then he switches to something very personal here. He says he loves us. And he has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. And because of that, he deserves all glory. Right? He says, all glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. But the unveiling doesn't stop there. Just a few verses down, John relates a vision that he had where Jesus is revealed to him even more dramatically. Now, instead of reading along with me, what I'm going to ask you guys to do is I read this description. I just want you to close your eyes. And I just want you to try and picture what John is describing as he gives this revelation of Jesus. So I'll start reading in verse 11 and just, just try and picture this. Just try and put yourself in John's shoes. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And now here's where the description begins, guys. John says, And when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said... Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. So I want you to try and put yourself in John's position. Now keep in mind that John had spent over three years hanging out with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. He walked with Jesus, he talked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He laughed with Jesus. I'm sure he wept with Jesus. And John describes himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he knew full well that Jesus loved him. And so he's walking and he hears a voice behind him. It says a loud voice and it says it sounded like a trumpet. So I don't think this voice is the same voice John remembered from Jesus' earthly ministry. It sounded different. But he knows from the title the voice gave itself that it's Jesus' voice. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So he knows it's Jesus' voice. 
So just imagine the excitement and the anticipation that John has as he knows when he turns around he's going to get to see Jesus again. Right? This Jesus that he spent three and a half years ministering with in his earthly ministry. And so he turns around and the first thing that we see that he notices are these seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of them he sees someone like the Son of Man. Now the Son of Man was the term that Jesus used most frequently to, to describe himself during his earthly ministry. That term comes from the book of Daniel, which is another prophetic book in Scripture. But when John turns around and sees Jesus, he doesn't see the Jesus he hung out with for three and a half years. He doesn't see the Jesus clothed in humility. He doesn't see the Jesus who is the carpenter's son, who was born in a manger. This is the revelation of Jesus in all his glory and power. And when John sees it, he's undone. This is the same glory that Jesus had before the beginning of the world with God the Father and God the Spirit. Jesus talked about this in John 17, 5. This is Jesus praying to God the Father and he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's the glory that John sees. And when John sees Jesus in all his glory and power, he's undone. And he falls at his feet as if he were dead. That's the awe-inspiring, amazing image that John has when he sees Jesus. See, when Jesus came to earth the first time, guys, he came in humility. Right? I mean, he was born to a lowly family. He was born in a manger. He had no earthly power. He wasn't even a leading rabbi. He wasn't part of the religious elite. He never had anything to his name. Scripture says he had no place to lay his head. He was basically homeless throughout his ministry. And then to cap it all off, he died a criminal's death. He was tortured and beaten and bloodied on the cross. And as a result of this, many people the first time around missed who Jesus really was. Well, I promise you guys, the second time around, nobody's going to miss who Jesus is. Because he's going to be coming in all his glory and all his power, and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. See, Jesus has been restored to the heavenly splendor he had before his incarnation. That's how we see Jesus described throughout the book of Revelation, in all his glory and in all his majesty. And there's so much here that should motivate us to worship him and to be in awe of him. I just want to highlight three things that Jesus said just in this last verse. First, Jesus said that he is the first and the last. Now, this is a striking statement because this title is used by God the Father three times in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 48, 12, I'll read this one for you. It says, listen to me, O family of Jacob, Israel, my chosen one. I alone am God, the first and the last. So making this statement, Jesus is claiming to be fully God. He's using titles that only God used. The second thing I see is that Jesus says he is the living one, specifically the one who died and yet lives again. Jesus is the absolute source of life for all who follow him. And lastly, Jesus said he holds the keys to death and the grave. I'm so grateful that the grave is not greater than Jesus, that the grave is not ultimate, that Jesus holds the keys to death and the grave. And Jesus has the power to raise his people from death to life, physically and spiritually. And there's a reason God chose to reveal these specific aspects of who Jesus is 
As we go through Revelation, you're going to see this isn't just a random list. There is significance to every one of these three aspects. So I want you to think back just for a minute to when I was reading that description. What was that like in your mind when you were picturing Jesus? What did that do in your heart as you were hearing John explain what Jesus looked like? See, I think some of you need to have a much bigger picture in your mind of who Jesus is. Because if you only picture Jesus as the humble carpenter's son, you're missing out. That's only part of Jesus, okay? I've heard people say, I just can't picture Jesus coming back to bring judgment. That's not the Jesus I read about in the Gospels. Well, Well, I would answer with two things. Number one, you should go read the Gospels again. Because Jesus clearly talks about it in the Gospels. And number two, if you can't picture it, just read Revelation 1. Like it's right there. John draws a very dramatic, very descriptive picture of Jesus' glory. And Jesus in all of his glory drove John to his knees as if he were dead. And again, John got to hang out with him for three years. See, I think for some of us, we don't get what it's going to be like to see Jesus in all of his glory. Because I'm telling you guys, when we come face to face with Jesus in all of his glory, it's not going to be the tame, cuddly experience so many people think it is. It's going to be awe-inspiring. It's going to drive you to your knees to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then I love how the King of kings and the Lord of lords responded to John. He says he laid his right hand on him and said, Don't be afraid. Now, Scripture doesn't say if Jesus' voice still sounded like a trumpet here. So this is just my own opinion. So I want to make sure I clear that up. The Bible is not explicit. But I don't think this second time that he sounded like a trumpet. I think his voice sounded familiar to John. I think it was the voice that John knew from his time in his earthly ministry with Jesus. And I love the fact that Jesus touched him on the shoulder. He didn't have to touch him. He could have just said, get up. But often in his earthly ministry, Jesus took the time to touch the untouchable. And I think that's a beautiful picture for you and for me. The guys, when we come face to face with Jesus Christ in all his glory, we're going to be driven to our knees in awe and wonder. And he's going to put his hand on our shoulder. He's going to say, don't be afraid. And there's going to be something familiar about that touch. There's going to be something we recognize about it. Because we recognize the touch that Jesus had on our heart when he redeemed us, when he went to the cross for us. I want to give you one more idea that I think may help make sense of the book of Revelation. And that's that the book of Revelation offers hope that Jesus will prevail over all evil. The book of Revelation offers hope that Jesus will prevail over all evil. So I want you to think back to those four lenses and understand how John's original readers might have thought about this. See, when John wrote this, the Christian church had experienced some persecution, but it's about to get ramped up. It's about to get turned up even more. And this persecution rose as Rome set up a form of emperor worship, okay, where people had to literally say, Caesar is Lord. They had to declare their loyalty and allegiance to the Roman emperor. And this expression was at its height in the decade that Revelation was written. It's peaking right now as John is writing this to the original audience. And so there was pressure on Christians to take part in religious festivals associated with the Roman government. If they didn't follow along, they faced social exclusion, economic hardships, even punishment and death. So when Revelation shows Jesus as the powerful Lord and the King of all kings, these aren't just abstract descriptions. They're meant to give courage 
and support and faith to people who are facing difficult times. Not only the first century Christians, but us. Because in case you haven't noticed, it's going to get worse before it gets better. If you see what's going on in our culture, there's going to come a time where you're persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, I want to end with a verse that I think is a great summary of the whole book. This is Revelation 17, 14. It says, together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because He is Lord of all lords and King of all kings. And His called and chosen and faithful ones will be with Him. So this talks about the the cosmic warfare that's being waged by the enemies of Jesus. And depending upon which lens we're using, that would determine which enemies it's talking about. I think it's talking about all of them. Whether it's the unbelieving emperors and dictators who are trying to reign on earth, whether it's the forces of culture who are putting pressure on God's people, or whether it's the unseen evil spirits that are behind all of that, at the end of the day, Jesus is Lord over all. And they can't even touch him. He's Lord over every authority, both seen and unseen. No power can ever defeat him. It's a done deal. And then here's where it gets really personal for us as believers. This last verse says, His called and His chosen and His faithful ones will be with Him. See, we get swept up in the victory. We get to be a part of of Jesus' victory campaign. And whether that was 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, whether it's 2020 or whenever Jesus comes back, we get to be a part of it because it's not just the book of Revelation that's all about Jesus. It's all, all about Jesus. Right? He is the cornerstone. It's all about Him. And so for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, I want us to be hopeful in the challenges that we face. Because guys, I'm telling you, we're going to face challenges. You know, whether, whether the end times are 100 years away, 1,000 years away, 10, it's going to get worse before it gets better. You need to know that. You are going to be persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ. You are going to face judgment if you stand up for the truth. And you might feel hopeless at times. And at times you might not even feel that the pain is worth staying true. And that's why it's so important that we know who Jesus is. All of Jesus. Not just humble carpenter's son Jesus. But the Jesus who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because he's ultimately in control. There's no greater answer than him. And he is the ultimate victor. And maybe most importantly, no hardship and no suffering can separate us from his love when we are his. Now, for those of you who have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it would be unloving of me to not tell you that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, whether you want to or not. And when that happens, one of two things are going to happen. Jesus is going to put his hand on your shoulder and say, don't be afraid. Or he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And it's not a religious checklist or a bunch of good works that are going to make the determination. It's what you did with his perfection and his sacrifice on the cross. If you recognize that the only way you can have a right relationship with our perfect, loving, righteous God is through what Jesus did on the cross, and you accept that sacrifice for your sins and you place your faith in him, he's going to touch you on the shoulder. He's going to say, don't be afraid. If you have questions about that, if you'd like to talk about that more, we'd love to talk with you after the service. As we wrap up, for those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus Christ, I just want to give you a couple challenges. Number one, I really want to challenge you to read through the book of Revelation as we go through this series. Take about 10 minutes a day. If you can't quite do that, take 10 minutes every other day. You'll still get through it twice if you do that. But as you read it, I want you to keep in mind the central theme of the book, that it's all about Jesus.
I want you to ask Jesus to help you see him in new ways. To have a broader vision and a broader appreciation of his glory and of his majesty and of his power. Let that drive you to your knees in worship and adoration as you praise him. Look for opportunities to be obedient. As you read through it, what are some commands there that I need to obey? What are some things I need to put into practice and surrender to his kingship? And then may God bless you as he promised to do earlier in the, in the book as you read and as you obey. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the encouragement that we do get in the book of Revelation. We thank you for the hope we have that Jesus Christ is the victor, that Jesus Christ is over all, that he has authority over all, both seen and unseen. Jesus, we just say that we're sorry for the times when we have a too narrow view of you. That yes, you were born in humility when you became flesh for us, that you had a lowly estate here on earth, but that's only part of the picture. That Jesus, you have the same glory that God the Father and God the Spirit have, and you had that before time began. And I just pray that, that that idea, that that picture in our minds would just bring us to our knees to praise you, to worship you, to surrender our allegiance to you. God, for anyone here who who hasn't done that yet, I just pray that today might be the day. Today would be the day that you would just penetrate their heart, that they would see how much you love them, the links you went to so that they could know you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.